Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. When science fiction writer Philip K. Dick died of a stroke on March 2, 1982, most of the literary world shrugged, and the entertainment world barely took notice. The science fiction world, though, knew it had lost one of the all-time greats. The film Blade Runner, based on his novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, was still a few months from its release. Today, IMDb lists nearly 50 adaptations for film, TV, and other media, and that includes 12 feature films and a handful of television series. So you have Total Recall, Scanner Darkly, Minority Report, both Blade Runner and its sequel, and then the series The Man in the High Castle and Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Between the time the KPFA show Probabilities started in February of 1977 until Philip K. Dick's death five years later, Richard A. Lupoff, Lawrence Davidson, and I never did get a chance to fully interview him for the program, though over the years we'd collected several excerpts we could use in a two-part memorial program which was aired sometime in the spring of 1982. The show consisted of commentary and explanations from all three of us interspersed with those excerpts. As is pointed out a couple of times in the program, the sound quality of the excerpts is very uneven, and even with digital tweaking, some of it may be unintelligible. What you're about to hear is the two-part show that originally aired, minus a few musical segments, along with the intros and outros from both parts. The program was never rebroadcast, and the cassette sat in a closet for the next 40 years until it was digitized, remastered, and edited in 2023. The program starts with an introduction by Richard A. Lupoff. Tonight is the first of our two-part memorial broadcast for the late Philip K. Dick, who died March 2nd, 1982. We sat down some weeks ago to plan these shows, and after discussing various ways to handle it, we examined our tape archives and discovered that we had considerable amounts of very, very fine material featuring Phil Dick himself. By fine material, I mean the content of the material. The uh, technical sound quality varies wildly because some of these tapes were made in living rooms and kitchens and other odd non-studio conditions and were not intended for broadcast. The various sources are some KPFA air checks, uh, a lengthy interview conducted by our friend Paul Williams, another interview conducted by myself, and a reading which Phil performed of a speech which he had written and delivered at a conference in Metz, France. The first segments uh, are from the Paul Williams interview, and they deal with Phil's very earliest exposures to science fiction, the things he read as a youngster and the way he felt about them. 
and I started reading Amazing. I thought that was keen. Uh, 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 Manly Wade Wellman and Robert Moore Williams read them all, every damn story. And you know what they were about? No. Well, I thought you'd want to know. Oh, what were they about? Well, uh, they're, they're looking at Mars, and it cracks open, and instead of it being all red and underneath, it's all green. These big hinges open, and it's all green, and there's a bunch of horrible people coming at you with guns. Pardon? And you like that? No, I said, uh, I find this hard to believe. 43 on Counter-Stone. And those I liked. Those I really liked. We're talking about Heinlein and Van Vogt. We're talking Van Vogt and Heinlein and Cutler. Yeah, people like that. When I started reading people like that in unknown, unknown worlds, I could see the difference in a flashlight. The first time I read Astounding and Unknown, I could see the difference. It was as clear as anything. And I treasured every Astounding that I read. And I spent half of my high school uh, days that trudging to old magazine shops, digging up old Astoundings to read them. That was the greatest thing. I still never find anything equal to it. Of going in and saying, you got any old astoundings? And a guy would bring out some from the 30s. And there'd be something like up by his bootstraps or something like yeah. that. you know. And sometimes really old ones. Really old. 33 and 34. You saw what I gave to the university. That's what I bought. That's my collection. I gave it to him. I gave it to him. I used to get those one by one. And it was the greatest thrill to find those stories. Donald Wandry, you know, and uh, Stanley Weinbaum. They were good, but they were limited to what John W. Campbell bought. Then Astounding began to fall The next set of quotations from Phil are taken from the what we refer to as the Sonoma tape. Uh, this is an interview which Phil granted to me. Uh, it took place in the kitchen of the home of, of his friend Joan Simpson in Sonoma. We have a series of short excerpts from that interview coming up in a moment. Uh, in them, Phil discusses the next phase of his life, uh, his, his uh, life as a college student and immediate post-college dropout, living in Berkeley in the late 1940s and early 50s. From there, he proceeds to his earliest sales as a science fiction writer. And I should mention one thing now uh, to anticipate questions which will arise. Phil will refer to the first story he sold. It's a story called Rug. Now, uh, some of our bibliographic uh, authorities will say, but that wasn't the first Phil Dick story published. The first Phil Dick story published was Beyond Lies the Wub. Uh, this is true. This is because publishers' uh, inventory and scheduling policies uh, made things work out that way, uh, but but uh, it was it was Rug that Phil first sold, and it's the one that he talks about when he talks about his first sale. The culture in Berkeley, the the, the uh, Baloo in Berkeley, at that time in the forties, the late forties, required you to have a, a a really thorough grounding in 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 the classics, uh, the approved classics. If you hadn't read. Something like Tom Jones, you know, Maul Flanders or Ulysses, you were just dead as far as being a guest anywhere. I mean, if you went to a party and and you hadn't read those Passos USA, I mean, like I, I had I had read plenty of science fiction, but the pressure of the Malou, we have to bear in mind that at that time in the late forties and early fifties, uh, science fiction was so looked down upon that it would have been. A tantamount to suicide 
in, in a group of people to come forth and say, boy, did I read a marvelous story recently. And they say, well, what was it? And you say, it was the Weapon Shops of Asia by uh, A.E. Van Vogt. I mean, they just would have pelted you with, with, with half grapefruits and, and coffee grounds from the garbage. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if they could have deciphered who, who you meant anyway, I mean, they wouldn't even know the name. I made my first sale to, to Tony Boucher at FNSF, and that was in November of 51. And um, Did you know Tony? Yes, I, I had attended a writing course that he gave. So, uh, but, I mean, I, that was just one of, I remember I submitted 13 different stories simultaneously that, that I had written. I, I figured, you know, I would, I stood a chance of selling one, perhaps, of the 13. Which is exactly what I did, and I had to revise it considerably for Tony. All of a sudden, you sell your first story to Tony Boucher. Do you recall what story that was? Ruth, that garbage man. About a dog that could see the garbage men or predatory carnivores from another planet, and who uh, accepted garbage each week as a propitiatory offering in, in surrogate of the people in the house, but that eventually they will tire, these garbage men will tire of accepting the mere surrogate offering and will take the people in the house and eat them. And that is how the dog sees the garbage men. And um, in the story, it's shown from the dog's point of view, and the garbage men are seen as uh, only quasi-humanoid. They have thin, wobbly necks, and their heads are like pumpkins, and their heads wobble. And I remember uh, Judith Merrill saw the story, and she wouldn't anthologize it because she said, garbage men don't have thin necks and wobbly you know, heads and so on. It's not true. And I wrote her a long letter and explained to her that it was the way the dog saw it, and she would have to accept the dog's viewpoint, and she still wouldn't accept the story for her. Uh, and apologizing because she said that's just not true. Uh, garbage men aren't that way. I said, well, it's a fantasy, Judy. It's a fantasy. Do you understand what is meant by a fantasy? But she said, no, a fantasy is a story with a fantasy premise, and then it's realistic from then on. And I, I said, well, in this, in this case, the fantasy premise is that a dog has a different point of view from us, and then everything is predicated on that. My idea of the fantasy was where, where the archetypal uh, elements become objectified and, and you have a, uh, an exteriorization of what are inner contents. And I remember that I had a term I used that in defending them was internal projection stories, stories where internal psychological contents were projected onto the outer world and became, you know, three-dimensional and real and concrete. And Scott, well, my agent, um, wrote me incredibly long letters saying that there was no such thing. I mean, that it was the inner world of dreams and fantasies, you know, and, and, and the unconscious. And then there was the objective outer world, and the two never mixed. So I gave up. But then later, when, when I had established myself more securely in the field, I began to go and do it. In such books as The Three Sigmata of Homer Eldridge, I, 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 I reverted to what I wanted to do and had uh, the nightmare inner content objectified in the outer world, so I slowly began to reintroduce those elements into my writing. Back at the time that I was starting to write science fiction, one night I was asleep, and I woke up and there was a figure standing at the, at the edge of the bed looking down at me, and, at the, and I grunted in amazement, 
and all of a sudden my wife woke up and started screaming. She could see it too. And she started screaming and I recognized it and I reassured her kept saying that it was just that it was me that was there not to be afraid. And within the last two years, that, let's say let's say that was nineteen fifty one. Within the last two years, I've dreamed almost every night that I was back in that house. And I have a very strong feeling that it, back then in 1951 or two, I saw my future self who had somehow in some you know, way that we don't understand, I wouldn't call it a cult, I would just say through some way we don't understand, that I had passed backward as my future self during one of my dreams now of that house going back there and seeing myself again. So there really are some strange things. But that would be the kind of stuff I would write as a fantasy in the, in the early 50s, something like that. About a month before Dick Lupoff conducted that interview with Phil in Sonoma, during the, that KPFA marathon, uh, Phil Dick showed up at the station. We had originally planned to run parts of that Paul Williams tape, and instead Phil came rollicking into the studio, and nobody quite <laughs> knew what to do at that point. He wound up first calling up, uh, subscribing to KPFA, saying, I'll be down in a couple of hours, uh, leaving the rest of us with our jaws hanging out, because at that point Phil hadn't made a public appearance in years. And he came by, and he participated in a panel discussion, which you'll be hearing a little bit of later, and that evening, Dick Lupoff did a science fiction rock and roll program, and Phil stepped into the studio and talked a little bit about rock and roll. And in this particular segment, he talks a little bit about one particular song by Jefferson Starship. Well, what interests me is um, the science fiction elements that are showing up in rock. I, in uh, the um, Starship's first album, Dragonfly, the, the the final song that Grace Slick sings, you know, about um, I didn't know there were corners in time. It's it's, it's a very exciting science fiction lyric, uh, um, almost the kind of scenario that, that she expresses. And I remember a number of years ago, John Lennon read my book, uh, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, and uh, Rolling Stone reported that he was thinking that it might make a good film. And... Uh, I, w I, being in love with Grace Slick, managed to get a rock critic to give her a copy of um, my book, The Android Dream of Electric Sheep, um, hoping that she would play, not the title role, but but the female lead. And I've always thought there was a strong crossover between rock and, and uh, science fiction. It, it looked good. It looked like a cross-pollination out of which something tremendous might come. Now, this next piece of tape you're going to hear is... Phil Dick talking about two separate aspects of Donald A. Wolheim. Donald Wolheim read some of my mainstream stuff, and he said, your mainstream stuff is not distinguished. Your science fiction, as he says, I'm going to tell you something that's going to be harsh, but it's true. You will never write mainstream stuff that is unusually good. Never. There are many people better than you, and you are not really very good. Your science fiction, he says, is distinguished. All your science fiction is distinguished. Someday you will be a great science fiction writer, is what he said. He says, I can't tell you why that is, but that's true. We'll give it back to Donald Walheim. I hold him responsible for all the things that go wrong in science fiction. Donald Walheim was the editor at Ace Books when Phil brought his very, very first um, book, Solar Lottery. And that second piece was... 
uh, Phil getting a little more nasty about Walheim at KPFA. Coming up now is a very, very strange little piece from the Williams tape, and Phil talks about a period in the mid-1960s, around the time that he was writing Ubik, when uh, it seemed his world was falling apart. Anthony Boucher, who was an opera critic on KPFA as well as a science fiction critic and was the founder of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh, died very quickly. And in short order, another close friend of his, uh, Bishop James Pike, died. Now, Pike has become the uh, source, the uh, Pike's biography uh, fictionalized is... Uh, Phil Dick's last book, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, which hit the bookstores this very week. Phil Dick talking about the very first time he met Ted Sturgeon and what Ted Sturgeon had to say about Tony Boucher. First time I met Ted Sturgeon, the first thing he said to me is, what kind of a universe is it where Tony Boucher dies of bone cancer when he's about 45 years old? It's the first thing Ted Sturgeon said to me. And I just stood there and stared at him. Because I've been thinking that ever since Tony dies. Always the first thought in my mind, every day of my life, was that thought. And that Ted Sturgeon, and he met me, would say that. And later, he asked me if I had known Tony. And even though I knew him. And that's something. In other words, it was the first thought in Ted Sturgeon's mind. What kind of a universe are we living in? That if ever there was a, 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 a wonderful person, it was Tony Bauscher. And if ever there was a senseless universe, it's the one we're in. And I think that Tony's death drove us to running better fiction because we were faced with a much more incomprehensible world than we had realized. We, we sort of guessed until then, but after that, we know it. You, you see, you have, you're building, you know, a jigsaw puzzle. And you keep building it, and you have only one piece left. And you have one hole in the puzzle. You take the last piece and you start to put it in the last hole, and it doesn't fit. And since it doesn't fit, the whole puzzle is screwed up, you know, you could never complete it. And while you're standing there looking at it, it just slowly falls into a million parts, you know. I mean, everything was, that was the way we all felt, you know. And the funny thing is it made me take my writing really seriously. So you wrote Amazing Death? Yes, that was just one of your most depressed books. Yes, but the guy wants to be a cactus. So the sun will shine, right? And in that book, the characters are killed off one by one, which doesn't happen in the rest of the books. Yet there is an intervention by a divine figure that comes walking up to you when everything's all over for you, right? Yeah. Remember that part where he says, what do you want to be? And a guy says, I want to be a cactus, so the sun will be shining on me all the time. But I can sleep and feel asleep when I'm sleeping. Even. And you know what, what happened was after Ubik, I gave up in a way, on the rational solutions, you know, the ones that make sense, and wrote a book that dealt, although, you know, I mentioned Tony, and I mentioned Jim, that's nothing, it's my friend Jim Pike croaked at the same goddamn practically time, before May the Death came out, you know. Another art religious person, here you got two, my two religious friends, die within, you know, a year or so of each other. They both had all the answers, and they both into life completely, you know, completely into life, and everything. But it posed a problem for the rest of us who were writing, you know, if we thought we were writing entertainment or escapism or something to earn a buck, we couldn't believe that after Tony died. And I certainly can believe that after Tony died. Jim died. Nancy's mother committed suicide. Jim's son shot himself in the face with a shotgun while on an acid trip. And uh, my cat, A. 
big rat voice. <laughs> it was terrible, man. They were croaking like they were falling around me like World War One. You know, just you know, like in the end of in the end of all quiet on the Western Front. Tom Diff said recently that Phil can still talk to us, and we can still talk to him. And as Richard Walensky and I were sitting in the studio the other night editing these tapes, it wasn't as if we were the active operators and the tapes were simply materials we were working with. We were in a very strange, creepy, but reassuring, very supportive kind of way, carrying on a dialogue with Phil Dick. It was, it was one of the most peculiar experiences I've ever had. In this next segment, he continues in the same, same strange vein that he was just talking about, laughing, laughing in the face of universal disaster because, because the universe is just beyond being dealt with. I used to believe the universe was basically hostile and that I was misplaced in it. I was different from it, fashioned from some other universe placed here, you see, different from it so that it zigged when I zagged, and that it had singled me out only because there was something weird about me. Right. Because it isn't so much that I blamed it that I blamed myself. I didn't really groove with the universe. Right. Now, I had a lot of fears that the universe would discover just how different I was from it. Uh, my only suspicions about it was that it would find out the truth about me, and its reaction would be perfectly normal. It would get me, because when I found out the truth, that's a normal reaction. I didn't feel that it was malevolent, just perceptive. And there's nothing worse than a perceptive universe if there's something weird about you. But then this, this year I realized that uh, that's not true. This next piece of tape is from the KPFA panel. You'll hear Fritz Leiber and Phil Dick talking about religious science fiction. First Corinthians was not a bad job, but Conjure Wife was exceedingly better. Thank you. <laughs> That's how I felt when I read The Man in the High Castle. I can I, I know how much I like, as I say, books like The Man in the High Castle. I'm not I'm not so sure about my own thing, but then we we never are. No, I, I, I can see St. Paul looking at what his amanuensis had done and thinking, well, fortunately, only a few people are going to read this. <laughs> I will reveal a secret. Many of my novels have as their theme theology, and I got the idea that you could write a theological theme into your science fiction novel from um, one of yours. Uh, you, which one was it where they had the, the god and, and he rained down money, but the money was too hot for people to pick up? And the <laughs> Gather food. darkness. Gather darkness, yes. yes. And I thought, you know, nobody has ever thought to do this before, to, to bring in theology as a topic of science fiction. And I, I was, I was uh, just in, in high school then, and uh, years later, it, it had, a, you know, that, that was the uh, germ origin of well, gee, most of my novels have a theological element in them, and, mm -hmm. it, and it came from that. Within our archives, we were fortunate enough to turn up a great deal of material concerning Phil Dick, more important, a great deal of material by Phil himself. <clears throat> Air checks and um, studio interviews and remote interviews, the 
Tape quality varies a great deal, but we feel that the content of the material is great enough and important enough to justify everyone having to work a little harder and put up with a little bit of ear problem in dealing with these tapes. In the first part of this program, Phil spoke a good deal about his early days um, before becoming a science fiction writer and his early days as a science fiction writer. This week we have material covering much later periods of his life and of his career. Our first three segments are all in Phil's own voice. The first of them is from 1977. In fact, they're all from that same era, the late 1970s. Uh, in this tape, Phil is talking with Paul Williams. This is an air check. And Phil is talking about his then most recent book, A Scanner Darkly. I've been writing science fiction for 27 years, and I really pursued one subject perpetually, and that is an attempt to discern the nature of reality and the nature of the human being. And looking back on the, the, the psychological effect that the results gave me, mm -hmm. I mean, many of the insights were painful. Talking about the book of Scanner Darkly describes some very painful experiences. They deal with the drug subculture of the 60s with brain damage and death. Okay. In my book, you don't find the, the penalty being one of arrest by the authorities, but of the drugs themselves and the paranoia and fear. The coughing that we hear on this tape is unfortunately uh, a, an additional person who was in the studio at the time. There's uh, nothing we can do about that except put up with it. In the next segment, also an interview between Phil and Paul Williams, although this was made out of the studio and uh, the technical quality is lesser. Phil talks about a period in the early 1970s and some of the vicissitudes of his life that he put up with in those days. There was a period in 71 where hunger, starvation was constant with me, no phone, no car, so weak that I couldn't walk and literally starving and putting a note on the door, asking anybody that came by if they could get me some food and things like that. They didn't. And really beginning to realize that I was facing the prospect of, of dying of the various things that people in India are, are, die of, a combination of malnutrition and disease. Well, a lot of writers are familiar with that state of affairs. The final segment on this topic uh, is back in the studio. And uh, in a moment, we will hear Phil actually read the opening section of A Scanner Darkly. I should mention first, though, one, one thing which I found of interest. Um, when, these, when this book came out, my daughter was uh, attending Berkeley High School, and she came home from school full of enthusiasm about this book, which all of the kids at Berkeley High, uh, all of her her colleagues were uh, so excited about it. And I said, what book is it? And she said, oh, she didn't remember. There was just so much talk about it on the campus. I asked her to find out for me just what book it was. And it was A Scanner Darkly. Um, it's, it, this is one of those marvelous circle 
closing upon itself situations because uh, Phil had attended Berkeley High a good many years earlier. And when I mentioned this to him, he seemed very pleased that this later generation of students at his old school were so enthusiastic about his book. Once a guy stood all day shaking bugs from his hair. The doctor told him there were no bugs in his hair. After he had taken a shower for eight hours, standing under hot water hour after hour, suffering the pain of the bugs, he got out and dried himself, and he still had bugs in his hair. In fact, he had bugs all over him. A month later, he had bugs in his lungs. Mm. Having nothing else to do or think about, he began to work out, theoretically, the life cycle of the bugs, and with the aid of the Britannica, tried to determine specifically which bugs they were. They now filled his house. He read about many different kinds and finally noticed bugs outdoors, so he concluded they were aphids. After that decision came to his mind, it never changed, no matter what other people told him, like aphids don't bite people. Well, now that's how the book opens. Um, of course, that's, that's based on an actual person that I knew. It's heroin that, that does that, and sometimes cocaine. Uh, he turned out to be a, a, a heroin addict, uh, uh -huh. but his his torment. I didn't know what, what was what was wrong with him. I believe that his torment was. I mean, if, you know, you know, a therapist have this new uh, jargon. They used to say, "Now, on a scale of one to ten, <laughs> uh, you know, how angry are you?" And you know, I'm. I'm either 11 or zero, but you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much suffering did this actual friend of mine undergo on a scale of one to 10? Well, he, he was suffering to an, an infinite extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've never seen such stuff. He finally killed himself. One of the amazing things about a scanner darkly is that uh, while it's the story of the disintegration of a personality, under the influence of drugs, it's wildly funny. And the black humor, Phil's black humor, comes through everything uh, that he talks about and uh, everything that he wrote. This next piece concerns Phil's interest, continuing interest in rock and roll, and he talks about David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth. And this was taped late night, October 19th, 1977, while Richard Lupoff was... Uh, doing a rock and roll science fiction program, Phil sat in, and he, here are his comments. It seemed to me that David Bowie's film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, was exactly what I had just prayed would come into existence. I mean, it, it fitted exactly what my my thoughts were back in the 60s when uh, uh, Tim Leary called me up to say that Lennon was in the other room reading uh, my book and, and that they were that Lennon was thinking of making a movie of it. And that never happened. But the boy film, the man, the man who fell to earth. I mean, that's that's a true cross pollination there. This next piece you're going to hear will be Phil talking about his collaboration with Roger Zelazny on the book Deus Ere and how it came to be. The book Deus Ere dates back to uh, 1964. Uh, I had submitted an outline to Doubleday, and they bought it. And uh, I started writing the, the book, and I, I found I didn't know enough about Christian theology, which is a, a pseudo-redundancy, uh, to complete the book. 
1968, I ran into Roger Zelazny and I said, Roger, you're the only person I know who is uh, educated enough to, to, to do a thing like this. I described it to him. And he took the, the manuscript portion that I had written and then he did a section and then he mailed it to me and I did a section and then we, we just mailed it back and forth. I did the final, I did the ending and then I went through the entire book and um, did the final editing on, on, the, on the book <coughs> and I did a very poor job of it. There's, the Greek is misspelled, the German is misspelled. I can't imagine how that happened because I know German. I, there, there are two errors in, in the German. I don't know how they crept in. But anyway, uh, we were living in different parts of the country, so we mailed the manuscript back and forth. And, and uh, I have to take final responsibility for the errors because I was the one who did the, uh, the, the uh, proofreading on the galleys. In 1977, I believe early 1977, Phil Dick gave a speech in Metz, France, and we received a copy of him reading the speech afterward and aired it in two uh, hour-long programs shortly thereafter, uh, back in the days when Probabilities was on once a month, maybe, <laughs> if that much. This next piece comes from uh, that Met speech, from early on in the speech. We have a couple of segments from later on in the speech. And this is Phil Dick waxing theological, perhaps, about alternate universes and about God and what God creates. Perhaps God created nothing but merely is, and we spend our lives within him or her or it, wondering constantly where he or she or it can be found. I enjoyed thinking along these lines for several years. God is as near at hand as the trash in the gutter. God is the trash in the gutter, to speak more precisely. But then one day a wicked thought entered my mind. Wicked because it undermined my marvelous pantheistic monism of which I was so proud. What if, and here you will see how at least this particular SF writer gets his plots, what if there exists a plurality of universes arranged along a sort of lateral axis, which is to say at right angles to the flow of linear time? I must admit that upon thinking this, I found I had conjured up a terrific absurdity 10,000 bodies of God arranged like so many suits hanging in some enormous closet, with God either wearing them all at once or going selectively back and forth among them, saying to himself, I think today I'll wear the one in which Germany and Japan won World War II, and then adding half to himself, and tomorrow I'll wear that nice one in which Napoleon defeated the British. That's one of my best. This does seem absurd, and it certainly seems to reveal the basic idea of nonsense. But suppose we recast this closet full of different suits of clothes just a little and say, what if God tries out a suit of clothes and then, for reasons best known to him, changes his mind, decides, using this metaphor, that the suit of clothes which he possesses or wears is not the one he wants, in which case the aforementioned closet full of suits of clothes is a sort of progressive sequence of worlds, picked up, used for a time, and then discarded in favor of an improved one. We might ask at this point, how would the suddenly discarded suit of clothes, the suddenly abandoned universe, feel? What would it experience? And, for us even more importantly, what change, if any, would the life forms living in that universe experience? Because I have a secret hunch that this exact thing does indeed happen, and I have a keen additional insight 
that the endless trillions of life forms involved would suppose incorrectly that they had experienced nothing, that no change had taken place. They, as elements of the new suit of clothes, would incorrectly imagine that they had always been worn, always been as they were now, with complete memories by which to prove the correctness of their subjective impressions. This next piece is again from the KPF-8 uh, air check of the uh, night that we did our first science fiction marathon. And again, we have Phil talking about the connections between rock and roll music and science fiction. There's that Neil Young thing um, um, after the gold rush. Yes, yeah, sure. And which just fascinates me. I mean, it just it seems to be you know the the, the distal essence of science yes. fiction in in in, in a, a, a song lyric. Phil Dick dealt with alternate universes. And our old men dream dreams, nightmare dreams specifically about a world of enslavement and evil, of prisons and jailers and ubiquitous police. I have. I wrote out those dreams in novel after novel, story after story, to name two in which this prior ugly present obtained most clearly. I cite The Man in the High Castle and my 1974 novel about the U.S. as a police state called Flow My Tears, the policeman said. I'm going to be very candid with you. I wrote both novels based on fragmentary residual memories of such a horrid slave state world. Or perhaps the term world is the wrong one, and I should say United States, since in both novels I was writing about my own country. In The Man in the Hot Castle, there is a novelist, Hawthorne Robinson, who has written an alternate world novel in which Germany, Italy, and Japan lost World War II. At the conclusion of Man in the High Castle, a woman appears at Robinson's door to tell him what he does not know, that his novel is true, the Axis did indeed lose the war. The irony of this ending, Robinson finding out that what he had supposed to be pure fiction spun out of his imagination was in fact true. The irony is this, that my own supposed imaginative work, The Man in the High Castle, is not fiction, or rather is fiction only now, thank God. But there was an alternate world, a previous present in which that particular time track actualized actualized and then was abolished due to intervention at some prior date. I am sure as you hear me say this, you do not really believe me, or even believe that I believe it myself. But nevertheless, it is true. I retain memories of that other world. That is why you will find it again described in the later novel, Flow My Tears. The world of Flow My Tears is an actual, or rather once actual, alternate world, and I remember it in detail. I do not know who else does. Maybe no one else does. Perhaps all of you were always, have always been here, but I was not. In March of 1974, I began to remember consciously, rather than merely subconsciously, that black iron prison police state world. Upon consciously remembering it, I did not need to write, write about it because I had always been writing about it. Nonetheless, my amazement was great to remember consciously, suddenly, that it once was so, as I'm sure you can imagine. Put yourself in my place. In novel after novel, story after story, over a 25-year period, I wrote repeatedly about a particular other landscape, a dreadful one. In March of 1974, I understood why, in my writing, I continually reverted to an awareness 
an intimation of that one particular world. I had good reason to. My novels and stories were, without my realizing it consciously, autobiographical. It was, this return of memory, the most extraordinary experience of my life. That return of memory brought on, well, who knows if there was really that return of memory, but whatever, brought on his uh, 1974 novel, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, in this next segment from the Met speech, as that last segment was, Phil Dick talks specifically about the alternate universe of Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and how it relates to this one. In the alternate world which I remembered, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement of the 60s, had failed. And evidently, in the mid-70s, Nixon was not removed from power. That which opposed him, if indeed anything existed which did or could, was inadequate. Therefore, one or more factors tending toward that destruction of the entrenched tyrannical power had retroactively to us come to be introduced. The scales 30 years earlier were thus tipped. Examine the text of Flow My Tears, and keeping in mind that it was written in 1970 and published in February of 1974, make an effort to construct the previous events which would have had to take place or not take place to account for the world depicted in the novel as lying slightly in the future. One small but critical theme is alluded to twice, I believe, in Flow My Tears. It has to do with Nixon. In the future world of Flow My Tears, in the dreadful slave state that exists and evidently has existed for decades, Richard Nixon is remembered as an exalted heroic leader, referred to, in fact, as the, quote, second only begotten son of God. It is evident from this and many other clues that Flow My Tears deals not with our future, but the future of a present world alternate to our world. Blacks, by the time Flow My Tears takes place, have become an ecological rarity, protected, quote, as are wild hooping cranes. In the novel, one rarely sees blacks on the streets of the U.S., but the year in which Flow My Tears takes place is only 11 years from now, October of 1988. Obviously, the fascist genocide against the blacks in the U.S. in my novel began long before 1977. A number of readers have pointed this out to me. One of them even pointed out that a careful reading of Flow My Tears not only indicates that the society depicted the USA police state of 1988 and therefore had to be an alternate world novel, but this reader pointed out that mysteriously at the very end of the novel, the protagonist, Felix Buckman, appears somehow to have slipped over into a different world, one in which blacks were not exterminated. Early in the novel, it is stipulated that a black couple are allowed by law to bear only one single child. Yet at the end of the novel, the black man at the all-night gas station proudly gets out his wallet and shows police general Buckman photographs of his three children. The open manner in which the black man shows the pictures to a perfect stranger indicates that for some weird and unexplained reason, it is now no longer illegal for a black couple to have several children. Somehow, just as Mr. Tagomi slipped over briefly into our alternate present, General Buckman in Flow My Tears did the same thing. As our friend Tom Dish has asserted, Phil Dick can still speak to us through his novels, through his collaborations, through his short fiction. The authoritative bibliography compiled by Daniel Levack and published by Underwood Miller lists 41 books, 
33 novels, two collaborations, six volumes of short stories. The count varies, of course, in view of variant texts and titles, foreign editions, and omnibus publications. Oh, I know that the horrors, the, the sufferings, the miseries of the, of the universe are overbalanced by the beauties and the joys mm. and the rewards. Uh, in the New Testament, um, Jesus says, the pain you are suffering now are like birth pangs. And later it said, the universe itself is, is, is like a, a woman in, uh, suffering birth pangs. She suffers now, but her joy later will be so great that they will outbalance the, the suffering. Mm. And, you know, that's a, a simplistic, but, but I mean, it, it, it's right on. I mean, uh, what, what, I, what I experienced was that uh, as bad as the suffering was, it was lesser in the great scheme of things. I will say this, that all years of all the bad scenes that I've ever been in, if you took them all and rolled them up into one ball, they would not be as great as the 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 bliss that I experienced. And the bliss was partially so powerful because it contained a promise. It was not just an intrinsic experience. It contained the promise of, of a further joys to come. When you are old, feeble, ill, and your end has come, we will come back for you and we will give you this permanently. You've been listening to a Probabilities Archive program recorded in 1982, which was dedicated to the life and work of science fiction author Philip K. Dick. My co-hosts were Lawrence Davidson and Richard A. Lupoff. The recording was digitized, remastered, and edited in 2023. The Man in the High Castle and Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams can be found at Amazon Prime. Only Apparently Real, The World of Philip K. Dick by Paul Williams was published in 1999 and is still in print. The complete Mets speech by Philip K. Dick can be found on YouTube. Most, if not all, of the novels of Philip K. Dick are still in print. If you want to seek out the strangest, go for The Game Players of Titan or The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Otherwise, there's The Man in the High Castle, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and A Scanner Darkly? Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>